Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the Notre Dame Cathedral is no longer on fire. What's the latest? Judges in the carbon tax case between Ontario and the federal government grilled the Ontario government yesterday, asking what their plan was instead. Also, Canada has joined a German-French coalition aimed at saving the world order from destruction, but it does not include the U.S. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. But obviously, we want to start off with what happened in uh, Paris yesterday. The Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris is no longer on fire. That's the good news. Uh, the building is still standing, uh, in spite of the fact that uh, it looked so incredible yesterday to see this building, this this iconic building, uh, up in flames. The spire fell just as uh, flames engulfed parts of the cathedral yesterday. And, uh, well, it's uh, it was heart-wrenching. I talked to a number of people over the last 24 hours that... Uh, actually have been there and uh, have visited there and have great memories of it, of course. It's, uh, I understand, the most visited uh, place in, in Europe uh, for tourists. And uh, obviously there's, there's a lot of people that get very emotional about that when they watch what's going on. And it was an emotional day in Paris, especially for Parisians and those visiting the city as they saw this happening and uh, thought the worst and hoped that it wasn't going to happen, uh, that uh, there was some point yesterday where firefighters actually even said they're not sure they could save the building. So it's, uh, it was quite a scene, and uh, even last night when uh, it looked like firefighters finally had a handle on things, and people gathered at the scene in downtown Paris, and uh, spontaneously this happened. Citizens, well-wishers, elected officials all gathering in Paris last night and uh, singing in unison uh, in honor of uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, to get the latest on this, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Redmond Shannon. He is, of course, the Europe correspondent with uh, Global News in Canada. Uh, Redmond, thank you so much for uh, taking some time for us on a very busy day today. You're welcome. Yes, it is, uh, it's quite a day and, and uh, quite a what's, uh, what's the scene in... in What's what's it like? What's the scene? Describe the scene for us right now, Redmond downtown in Paris. Well, what we're seeing is uh, I'm, I'm on the uh, bank of the Seine here, looking across to the rear side of Notre Dame right now. Huge interest, huge amount of tourists who probably intended on visiting the cathedral today, looking across to what is left of it. And what is left is mo- almost all of the stone uh, main structure, thankfully. The two main towers opposite the square, they are there. We have uh, the the rear buttressed area of the church is there, but what we don't have is the roof. And uh, above the church, uh, a huge um, construction of scaffolding that was there. You will see in the fire pictures last mm-hmm. night. Beneath that scaffolding is an inverted MTV shape, and that is where the roof used to be. And that really tells its own story. And that, of course, was where that steeple was. Perhaps the iconic, saddest moment of that fire is two hours into it when the steeple. To see it, how it gasped, and it sort of really hit home then what was going on. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm sure you've been told this and you're aware of this as well, but there's. I just want to read this. It's about two lines long here. So, on the crest of the highest gallery, higher than the central rose window, there was a great flame rising between the two towers with whirlwinds of sparks. 
a vast disordered and furious flame, a tongue of which was borne into the smoke by the wind. That sounds like a description of yesterday, doesn't it? But it, it's actually a quote from The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo that was written in 1851. Uh, it's it's uh, ironic and, and, and rather bizarre that that was almost a foreshadowing of what you were watching yesterday. It's, uh, it is eerie, and it's, it's so sad. And the thing is, I suppose, what it does remind you of too, Bill, is that this is the story of so many famous cathedrals around the world, particularly in Europe, that are centuries old like this, eight and a half centuries old, that have burnt down, be it in war or by accident over the centuries, and have been rebuilt again. The thing is, it takes, it takes sometimes uh, decades to rebuild these churches. Now, there is an awful lot of money being thrown at this, but it'll still take an awful long time because you can't just put regular construction expertise at this. You need very specialist uh, expertise to be put at this. You need to study exactly how the church was in order to rebuild it as, as it was before. So, yes, it's, uh, it's harking back to days gone by, and in 2019 we have this uh, world-iconic cathedral catch fire, and there is very little you can do when something like that catches fire and fire hoses can't reach to the, the high roof of a, of a cathedral like this, of course. I, I know there's a lot of investigating yet to be done in situations like this, Redmond, but there's any, any speculation, any idea as to what might have caused this? Well, investigators are focusing on that renovation work, that scaffolding around the where the roof used to be. That is, the they believe, the most likely cause here. That's something to do with that work in renovating that steeple um, that sadly is no more, that perhaps some piece of equipment that this is uh, the, the focus is on, that this was an accident and nothing, nothing more sinister than that because it started in that roof area. And uh, one feels for that perhaps worker or workers who, who may have uh, forgotten something or may have done something inadvertently wrong that, that caused this. And now today we look up and uh, the Notre Dame has changed, uh, not forever, but certainly for a very long time. I know that uh, there was a lot of speculation about that and stuff on social media, which obviously you, you, you try to be dismissive of, but you always uh, you know, hope it's not the worst-case scenario, that uh, terrorism or anything like that. But this, this doesn't seem to have any of the earmarks of that sort of thing. It does look like if this was uh, not something that was done purposely in situations like that. But I was surprised, and I, I heard other comments about this too, Redmond, about how quickly that fire spread, uh, almost like a tinderbox. Yeah, well, I, su- I suppose it, in some ways it's not surprising given the, the age of some of the, uh, the, the wood in the church uh, that it, it, was, it went up so quickly and you don't have modern sprinkler systems like you would in modern buildings, of course. And it is such so high off the ground that even when fire trucks got here, there's only so much they can do. You're, you're just throwing water up on the roof there if you can reach it at all. So um, when it gets going, it's really hard to stop and, and that was just so evident last night. There was some speculation around mid-afternoon back here in North America yesterday that the building was going to go down, that they could not save the building. Uh, it took a long time, but firefighters seemed to have gained the upper hand pretty quickly, right at, shortly after that. I think that seemed to be the tactic, Bill, and to, to say, okay, we're not going to save this the, the roof, and we're not going to save the steeple, and a lot of this is going to be damaged but saving the main structure and making sure that you don't have intense heat around some of the main structure is, is what they focus clearly focused on. And it seems like they were successful. Of course, there needs to be engineering works and surveying work to, to make sure that that's the case. Perhaps there could be areas of the building, some masonry, that are deemed unsafe and might have to come down or be hugely, hugely repaired. 
So that is yet to be seen, and we're going to find that out, out over the coming days or weeks. One of the stories that I, I know we want to get more details about too is uh, was the the rescue of of the valuables in there, the art, uh, the other the relics and things of this nature. I, I know you don't anticipate a tragedy like this occurring. Uh, the, the Parisians, I'm certainly didn't do that, but it, it seemed to me, Redmond, as if they had probably talked about this and practiced it because there was a great efficiency in the way that they got everything out of there so quickly. Yeah, I suppose it's sadly, but but thankfully they they had planned for something like this and planned for the for the worst and they had that sort of human chain of passing out these artifacts as quickly as possible on the in the very early stages of the fire while it was still still somewhat safe to do so so they did save an awful lot of artifacts including a, that iconic uh, crown of thorns purports to be the the crown of thorns of jesus that is a matter of faith of course but regardless it is so important to catholics that that artifacts the organ such a hugely uh, important piece of of the church too. Many of these items amazingly were saved, so that is something to take away. And, and one day, one hopes that they'll be back inside the church too. Uh, what happens to that artwork? Obviously, they're not going to put it back in there. I, I would think maybe the Louvre. You, yeah. Well, I'm not sure, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that will be. They'll, they'll have to find some pride of place uh, for the next for the coming years while while this uh, uh, restoration work begins. Whenever it does begin. Redmond, any idea, uh, any indication at all about when there'll be an update about the investigation and, and what the next steps are? No, we haven't been told about when that will be, but it could be announced by uh, um, authorities uh, at any time about uh, their initial investigations. But, you know, from, from what we're hearing, it is believed that really this is just a, a, a sad accident. And now step two is, is to rebuild. And, and uh, you, I don't know if you go on with your life, but certainly the, the, uh, the majority of, of the people in that city, and including with uh, the, the president, of course, Mr. Macron, uh, say it's, it's time to, to turn the page and, and rebuild. And that's going to be an onerous task. It'd be, uh, it'll, it'll cost a huge amount of money, but a huge amount has already been donated from ordinary people, but also from the biggest businesses in France, uh, 400 million euros from three of the big uh, businesses in France already, including Total Oil and the company behind Gucci and Yves Saint Laurent. So 400 million euros, that's 600 million Canadian dollars is a huge amount of money, but you need the expertise to go with that. So so you can't just throw money at it. It will take time too, Bill. It will. Redmond, thank you so much for taking time for us today on a very busy day over in Paris. Uh, we appreciate that. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Bye. Take care. Redmond Shannon, of course, European correspondent with Global News, who is uh, just on the other side of the river uh, where this all occurred yesterday. Uh, his point, by the way, about the fundraising is, is miraculous uh, and, and just a, a story in and of itself. Uh, too early to estimate the cost of the damage, they said, according to uh, Bertrand de Fendeo, who is the uh, Foundation de Patrimonia. Uh, that's the charity that worked to protect uh, French heritage buildings, including, obviously, the cathedral. Uh, they figure, though, just a ballpark figure, something in the neighborhood of hundreds of millions of dollars for the restoration that's going to take place. And uh, obviously, as, as Redmond was telling us, the stone elements of that are going to be scorched. That can be done, but there's going to have to be a lot of rebuilding done. Uh, and to his point, two of France's wealthiest men, Francois Henry Pinot, who is the chief executive of the Caring Group uh, that owns uh, things like Gucci and Yves Saint Laurent, and Bernard Arnault, who is the main shareholder of the luxury group LMHV, said that they would donate 100 million euros and 200 million euros, respectively. The city of Paris has pledged 50 million euros, and uh, amazingly, uh, in North America, there are fundraising efforts now for the restoration of the Notre Dame Cathedral after the yesterday's fire. Uh, many of the news networks spent a considerable amount, considerable amount of time rather, 
covering the event yesterday. Uh, of course, just basically wiping out the rest of their programming uh, to bring live pictures and uh, and obviously correspondence over there uh, to get a bird's eye view as to what was happening. Uh, and other campaigns uh, have been launched in the United States right now, as uh, well as uh, well wishes from right around the world for various contributions. There's so di- different social media sites. I'm sure you can Google that and get some sort of an idea as to what's going on. Uh, anyway, it's uh, it's going to happen. It's going to be rebuilt. Uh, the good news, of course, about this whole thing is that many of the artifacts and uh, art treasures uh, were removed. Some did not get out uh, and could have some water damage as a result of the firefighters' uh, efforts yesterday. But uh, we'll determine that, I guess, at some point in the future. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, panel of judges, five-judge panel uh, in the carbon tax case in uh, Toronto, t- downtown Toronto yesterday, uh, this is the case, of course, between the Ontario government and the federal government uh, having to do with, uh, well, they think the legitimacy, that's the Ontario government contention, that uh, the carbon tax is uh, a, a tax grab, an unconstitutional tax grab. That's the the gist of their argument. Uh, the Ontario side had to, yesterday to put their case forth, and they were grilled by the, the panel of judges, uh, shot holes in an awful lot of the things that they said. But it'll be the Canadian government's turn to, to do that today, and we can expect probably the same sort of thing to go on. So why is this even happening, and where is this leading us? Joining us to talk about this is David Estra. David is counseling Gowling's WLG Toronto office. He's a senior environmental law practitioner, distinguished adjunct professor, and EJS uh, clinic academic and co-director. And uh, very respected in this business uh, because of a great body of work that he's done over the years. Uh, David, welcome to the program. It's great to talk to you today. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about why we're there. Uh, this was, of course, a court action that Doug Ford promised if we got to be premier, he was going to do this. Uh, a few other provinces have joined in. Some of us kind of begged off on this, too. Is this a legitimate concern about whether or not the government, the federal government, has the, the, the right and, and the ability to en- enact a, a piece of a legislation like this? Well, I mean, it's something that they can do, but... Uh, and, and ultimately, it'll be for the court to determine whether or not the feds have the, the authority to do it. I, I think they, they do. But th- what, what's really fascinating in terms of the necessity is that I don't think this whole court case is necessary at all. In fact, Mr. Ford uh, did something that actually uh, enabled him to bring the case. Um, under the federal uh, climate change uh, law that came into effect April 1st, which would it would it would not even have applied in Ontario to prov- provide for a, a carbon uh, fee or tax uh, at the pump and, and other places if uh, if Ford had not axed the, the uh, Liberal government's cap and trade program that was already in effect. So by by killing that plan and not having anything effective in place, that brought into effect the the federal plan. If Mr. Ford had just uh, left things alone, there would there would be nothing to fight. Now Ford claims, well, you know, it's it's a tax grab, and and uh, but but in fact, um, what has Mr. Ford actually just uh, done? He's he's imposed since he killed the the last uh, liberal uh, plan in Ontario cap-and-trade scheme, um, the, um, he's now proposed to impose his own fees, his own taxes on high-emitting Ontario industry. But you know what? Under the federal plan, taxpayers, consumers, would get money back from the federal government. Under his plan, we all pay it out of pocket. The, if if uh, under Ford's plan, uh, the high-emitting industries would pass that cost on to us, the consumers, and there's nothing in Ford's plan that would see us getting any money back. So, it, it, it to me, it, it makes absolutely no sense from an economic perspective. 
under the previous plan, the federal, the provincial government was taking in two to three billion dollars a year under the uh, from from industries who who chose to keep emitting, and and they were using that money for great public purposes. They were going to use it for expanding public transit, for giving monies to hospitals and universities and and, and schools so they could retrofit and save energy. None of that, the, all that's been killed by Mr. Ford. So. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but he's chosen to do it. David, there's uh, more than a little hypocrisy in some of the arguments that the, the Ford government has put forward on this, and uh, and even the impact it's going to have on consumers. And, uh, you know, part of the money, of course, that he's uh, allocated for this is to put stickers on gasoline pumps all over the province yeah. of Ontario that, that are going to tell us that uh, it's, there's a four cents a liter increase in the price of our gasoline right now because of this carbon tax. Uh, what they don't say is is the fact that the province is taking 14 cents of lit- out of every dollar for that liter of gasoline too but that uh, that's not part of his argument so that's going to be excluded yeah exactly i know it, it's type, it, 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 there's there's that's a great further example of hip- hypocrisy at work and and you know the whole issue of trying to put stickers on gas pumps to sell a message is is really uh, not one that uh, lies very well with most people is this more political than it is ideological? I mean, this is this. I, I, I get the sense in listening to what the, the, the premier is saying, and even what the uh, the lawyer's presentation was yesterday. Uh, it seemed to be steeped much more in in, in political jargon and and political, uh, I guess, invected than than for, talk about what's good for the environment, what's good for the taxpayer. There's there's an ideological difference here. Well, you've said it, and I agree with that completely. That's my analysis as well. I mean, this is not helping. It's not helping in terms of stopping carbon emissions. It's not uh, helping in terms of uh, passing on the costs to the right people to to pay for the harm that continues to happen. You know, even if even if, for example, the uh, cost of the pump went up four cents a liter, um, and and that money wasn't coming back as it is as soon as you file a tax return by the end of this month. Um, I mean, the, the, the damage that increased or continuing emissions is going to cause and is causing to all of us is going to be, you know, thousands of times more than four cents. Four cents. It, it's going to be devastating. And so we have to act, uh, you know, quickly to, to bring emissions down. I've been involved with the International Bar Association. We've studied the problem. And, and uh, unless Canada, Canada's the ninth largest greenhouse gas emitting country in the world and unless Canada and other high emitting nations take effective and rapid action to reduce these emissions as we committed to do under the Paris Agreement we're all going to be, uh, the phrase is roasted, toasted and grilled and, and I mean really, this Canada must go on a war footing to bring down these GHG emissions, these greenhouse gas emissions, And it's all, but it's only the federal government that has the authority to make this happen across Canada. Which is contrary to what, of course, the uh, provincial lawyers talked about yesterday. They suggested this is not a national emergency. Uh, are, are we to assume from that, David, that this, this is a uh, because they do admit that there is a greenhouse gas and and, and there is a, a climate change concern going on here? But does it stop at the Ontario-Manitoba border? Is that what they're suggesting? Well, they're saying, you know, we're doing something. Well, in fact, what they're doing is taking credit for what the last government did. They said, well, emissions in Ontario come down by 20%, but that was all due to what the Liberal government did to close down the coal-fired power plants. And now Mr. Ford's plan is going to be one-third less effective than, than what was in place before. 
under the previous Ontario cap and trade law. I mean, that that's just hypocrisy. And and but it's more than hypocrisy. It's harmful. It's risky. And it's it's not the kind of action that we really need. So uh, when Mr. Ford, you know, claims he wants to do something about car- carbon, he, you know, he it, it he isn't. The proof is out there. The pudding, proof of the pudding is not there. David, you've studied this, and, and maybe a lot of people here are looking at this, you know, through rose-colored glasses. Some of them might be, but others simply through the political uh, jargon that's going through this. In a broader sense, uh, nationally and internationally, right now, uh, what is the feeling about carbon pricing? I, I, I get the sense in this, the things that I've read over the last couple of months that uh, that there has been a change in attitude. You, the people come to what understand why it's an effective way? I would imagine so, and they, they seem to accept the fact that something like this has to happen, whether it's cap-and-trade or, or carbon pricing. I mean, the, you know, it's uh, six of one, half dozen of the other, I guess, depending on the jurisdiction. But they seem to think that this this is necessary and, and may be the most pragmatic uh, way to, to approach this concern. I think that's I think that's true, and even the the big uh, carbon emitting companies, the carbon majors, are getting the idea that uh, that this is the best way to go. In fact, uh, there's a number of interveners in the court case that's going on now, and one of them is the International uh, uh, Carbon Trading Association, and they're they're in supporting the federal law. They're there to support the federal law because they believe that this is the best way to bring emissions down. So I mean, and and their some of the their members are the biggest emitters, like Exxon and Shell and the utility companies. They understand that this is something that has to happen, and they they are ready to do it. And, and I understand there's some concerns, and there are some legitimate things about carbon pricing that we could say, well, let's it's not the best possible. So, but it's like what Winston Churchill said about democracy, isn't it, David? That uh, it's the worst possible system of government unless you compare it to all the other ones. Uh, when, when you put it in that in uh, that that light, it seems to be the, the the program of choice by many governments these days. Exactly, and and you know uh, all the world's leading economists, the Canadian economists, even even the Ecofisco Commission in Canada, which is comprised of uh, has directors that in, used to include Preston Manning and the former senior vice presidents of big banks in Canada, they all say carbon pricing is the most sensible way of of bringing this. The emissions down, and 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 the way that the uh, federal government's plan would do it makes sense because they're going to impose some kind of a fee, but you can get money back from them, and if you choose to reduce your emissions, taking a little more transit or whatever like that, you're going to make money on this as an as a consumer. So per- it, it just makes sense. Preston Manning actually wrote an op-ed piece the other day that uh, basically called out uh, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer and Premier Ford uh, and, and said, look, back off. This is not a bad idea. This is the best way to do this. And it raises an interesting point, David, because a lot of people that are on the side of, of the Ford government in this situation look at this as a left-wing versus conservative idea, uh, when the, the actual fact is carbon pricing was actually a conservative idea. That, that was their idea. That was their way to approach this. And for some reason, uh, some of these conservatives, including Mr. Ford, apparently, have abandoned that. Uh, people at Preston Manning have not. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it it is quite remarkable that you have someone like Preston Manning and the former and, and other senior economists and, and VPs of major banks all agreeing that this is the best thing to do. It's it's purely ideological on the part of the Ford government. He he thinks that somehow he's going to. It, it goes along with his buck a beer approach as being you know the way to govern. And and you know the, nobody even wanted could bring the price of a beer down to a dollar, let alone. Sell, sell beer at buck a beer, uh, you know, buck a head. So, I mean, he's he, he's good at espousing ideology and saying he wants to govern in the best interests of, of the little guy. But, in fact, this plan 
what what he's done by getting rid of the federal or trying to get rid of the federal plan and bringing in his own is actually going to a uh, increase emissions in, from Ontario because he's not prepared to bring them down as much as they were being brought down before, and b it's going to cost the Ontario consumers, you and me, more money because uh, the if he does impose fees on some of these high emitters, they're going to just pass them back on to us, and there's not going to be any money coming forward from these high emitters that's going to pay for. Uh, re-insulation of hospitals and buildings and, and rapid transit and all that kind of stuff. And and so we're just totally worse off. I don't know if you saw this poll that was released yesterday. It's uh, from the Canadians for Clean Prosperity. That's a, an environmental lobby group, and I know some people are going to hear that and say, oh, I'd be dismissive, they're just a bunch of left-wing nuts. Uh, they're not, actually. It's a group of business people. Uh, their leaders, uh, Don Cameron, who was actually a senior policy advisor for Stephen Harper for many, many years, uh, and they have done a poll here in Ontario uh, 27% of Ontarians support uh, the Doug Ford challenge, only 27%, uh, which indicates that he does not have uh, the For the People uh, moniker, I guess, uh, to be able to attach to this one. Uh, I, it, it boggles the mind, actually, that he seems to want to push through with this, despite the fact that most Ontarians don't think it's a very good idea. <clears throat> well, it, it does boggle the mind. And, and the other thing we haven't really touched on is, is, is how climate change is going to most affect our children and our grandchildren. I mean, you know, if we don't act with alacrity, if we don't act with, with rapid uh, concern, uh, concern and take effective action, it's the kids and our grandchildren uh, that are just going to inherit a world that's almost unlivable. I mean, it's not just uh, getting hotter and windier, but we're going to be flooded. We're bringing up disease vectors from the United States from warmer climates like Lyme disease, so you can't take your dogs out now and without, you know, checking you and your dog for, for these kinds of thing, things. Um, it's the, the Canadian Public Health Association is one of the interveners in this case, and they're there because they recognize and have studied the impacts of climate change on health. Um, so, I mean, there's such short-sightedness in trying to uh, dismiss uh, climate change as something that nobody has to do much about uh, and try to say, well, you know, we're, we're going to take care of it. But, but unfortunately, the Ford government is not proposing anything that will take care of it, and we all have to do this. Each level of government in Canada has to be acting effectively. David, if you could, uh, walk us through with the process here and, and how uh, this this will happen at the Ontario Court of Appeals, where it's happening these days, uh, and if there are going to be next steps, how that would happen. Uh, I, as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, the Ontario government presented their case yesterday. I guess the Canadian government will do that today. Uh, but they right. say four days. How is that going to roll out? Well, there's those, right. Today is the arguments by uh, on, um, by Canada, and then tomorrow, Wednesday, there's um, <laughs> there's twelve intervener groups that have been uh, given status by the court to argue. Ten of whom all support the federal government, and only two support um, uh, uh, Ontario. And then there's uh, three provinces that have also intervened: uh, New Brunswick, Saskatchewan, and BC. And they'll all also the attorney generals for those provinces will also be arguing tomorrow, and um, and then Friday uh, Thursday they'll be I guess rebuttal by by Ontario, um, but so so actually it's very fascinating uh, the, the groups that are that are coming through um, they include as I mentioned the Canadian Public Health Association the nonpartisan expert eco fiscal commission the one that Preston Manning was one of the founders of the International Emissions Trading Association there's a national youth climate coalition saying you know we're the ones that are really going to suffer here there's three uh, national environmental organizations and first nations as well and uh, some of the uh, some of the organizations are putting forward arguments that are legal arguments that uh, actually are uh, 
supporting the law in a different way than the federal government itself is putting it forward. There's, the federal government is arguing they can do this on the basis of what's called peace, order, and good government, that they have an overriding ability to do this when something is affecting the nation as a whole. But already the Supreme Court of Canada found that uh, toxic emissions can be properly regulated anywhere in Canada by the federal government. That was established uh, 20 years ago in, in a case about uh, Hydro-Quebec. And that involved whether or not the Canadian Environmental Protection Act was really a valid federal statute, and uh, which regulates toxic emissions. And the Supreme Court of Canada said, yes, you know, in, in light of emerging realities, uh, we, the court has to be prepared to, to adjust its uh, thought about these things. Well, you know what? Under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, uh, greenhouse gas emissions are specifically identified as a toxic substance. So there's a criminal, this is the criminal law power being used to uphold uh, federal law for this kind of thing, and I think that's going to potentially, if there was any doubt about it, that will ultimately prevail in this matter. And, and this is a back and forth. You don't just, uh, I guess, it, when you're appearing before the, the judges, you don't just make your presentation and sit down. I guess you have to defend it. Uh, there is a, a question and an answer session there, too, isn't there? Well, that's right. The judges have, uh, to the extent they want to engage in a, a discussion or debate with some counsel or any of the parties, they have the right to do that, and we saw some of that happening yesterday. They will ask probing questions to, to each of the parties, and uh, I think we'll hear some questions today uh, uh, by the judges about uh, to Canada's lawyers, and uh, and um, but, but, but the interveners don't have nearly as much time. The, the 12 groups, mm-hmm. um, they have 10 minutes each, so <laughs> they've got to be pretty precise exactly. in their argument. A lot of editing yeah, they, going on. Well, uh, there's some interesting arguments there, and, and if anybody wants to actually delve into them, they're all on the Court of Appeal website. Excellent. Uh, no matter, we're not going to get a decision this week, though, are we? Oh no, not at all. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, there was a similar reference in Saskatchewan Court of Appeal um, uh, in February, and that that decision hasn't come out yet. I don't think the one from Ontario will come out for weeks or maybe a couple of months, and. Uh, and then uh, we'll have to see what happens from from both of those, whether or not anybody will want to try and appeal those to the Supreme Court of Canada. It's not automatic, I don't think, to get it to the Supreme Court of Canada. And if that is the next level, then, from the Court of Appeals right to the Supreme Court? Yeah, that's the only level to go up to. Well, uh, the, the Premier tells us he set aside $30 million of our money to fight this battle, so I don't know how far he wants to go on this. I guess it depends on the the tenure of the, uh, the ruling when they finally come down. <laughs> I, I, I guess so. I mean, I think he could spend that money a lot more helpfully in terms of preventing climate change, but that's up to him. David, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, we haven't talked since uh, I was on council and you were representing the city, the Red Hill uh, situation many, many years ago, successfully, I might add, too. Uh, great to have you back here. Great to get your perspective on this. Thanks again. Thanks very much. I should say, I, I, since the January 1st, I'm no longer with Gowlings. I sort of had to retire from them, but uh, but uh, I am still, so I'm still practicing. I'm still up at Osgood teaching uh, environmental law, and uh, glad to be of help whenever I can. Thank you so much, David. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. David okay. Eston, of course, a uh, very, very well-respected environmental lawyer, who obviously has a handle on what's going on in that courtroom in Toronto today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A number of governments, including the Canadian government, I guess have essentially decided that if they can't work with Donald Trump, they'll work around him. Uh, Canada has joined a German, French, and Japanese coalition aimed at saving the world order from destruction 
uh, and they're not including the U.S. in this. Joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Good morning, Marvin. How are you today? I am fine, thank you, Bill. Is, there's a sense of inevitability to this, the way that Trump has been trashing a lot of the uh, the organizations, the G7, NATO, and things of this nature, that eventually these guys were going to get together and said, do we really need this guy? They're not going to kick him out, but they seem to have kind of uh, done an end run around this. You're right. So first, if you don't mind, I'm just going to go back to your introduction when you talked about a world order. Those two words often get people quite frightened, uh, uh, you know, the whole idea that somehow we're all being manipulated. So it's not quite that world order we're talking about here. It's simply that the idea is that some of the problems facing the world today need to be solved using multilateralism, meaning all the governments in the world need to come together and solve them. This is the whole basis of the Paris Climate Accord or of the United Nations or uh, of NATO, as an example. And Donald Trump, ever since he's been elected, seems to be of the opinion that uh, what the world needs is the United States. And just let the United States solve things. And if you're not going to stand back and let us do our thing, then we don't really need you at all. And that is not a view shared by most of the governments in the world. So they have tried to work through these multilateral organizations, whether it's the G7 or the G20, uh, NATO as an example, the United Nations. But time and time again, Mr. Trump uh, either doesn't attend the meetings or he doesn't seem to care about the meetings or he doesn't really want to participate or his opinion is do whatever I tell you to do and that's the right thing, which is not what multilateralism is about at all. So as you pointed out, no surprise that the other parts of the world say, well, uh, for the time being, with Mr. Trump uh, leading America in a quite a different direction than it has ever been before, uh, maybe we should do something about it. So, as you correctly pointed out, this started with Germany and France, um, two people, by the way, two countries, who, uh, you know, 70 years ago were at each other's throats, but it shows you how far things can evolve. It was those two countries that said, you know, let, let's reinforce this. So they created a, for lack of a better term, let's call it a committee on multilateralism. Shortly thereafter, Japan joined, and then earlier this year, Canada came along for the party as well. Not that we're going to fix anything, but it's basically saying that we still believe in multilateralism. We still believe that the world's nations should get together and talk about the world's problems, whatever they should happen to be, and that, that we wanted to reinforce that. The Britain is not there, and the, and the major reason is that Britain, of course, has a much bigger problem on its hand at this moment, which is Brexit, and what's it going to do and how's it going to handle it. I think if we were in calmer times, you would have seen Britain be part of this as well. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's very telling that this is how the world is reacting to Donald Trump's leadership. Well, especially because, I mean, the, the, the common theme in a lot of Trump's musings about uh, many of the organizations you referenced is that uh, not only does he not like them, but he says that you know, the U.S. is getting a raw deal. Uh, in just about every one of them, and and you know he's starting to pull out of most of these, so it's not surprising that these countries that look at we got to do something here to maintain, I, I guess as you said, Marvin, the the qualities that they think need to exist uh, to exist on this planet. Yeah. So when Mr. Trump says that the United States is getting a raw deal, what he what he translates is that whatever America used to do and and do quite willingly has been questioned, and whether that is being the world's police officer or solving everything with force or uh, you know, filling the environment full of pollution, whether it's the air or the water, water excuse me, uh, attacking uh, public parks and public spaces, and so on and so forth. Uh, Mr. Trump is actually the, the perfect embodiment of many things that we're trying to change in the world today. Uh, and he's maybe one of these last bastions saying, no, I'm drawing a line in the sand 
no way in heck am I going to talk about climate change, no way in heck am I going to worry about refugees or asylum seekers, it's all about America first, buddy, I'm going to go back to the way it once was. And I think there are other people who say that that was a fine attitude in the 1940s and 50s, but that's not the way it is today, and they just want to keep that thought alive that there is another approach to solving the world's problems, and it isn't America first. One of the other things about the, what I've read about this, and as you mentioned, Canada is just recently part of this organization, the, these countries that are getting together. Uh, you, you talked about a bunch of different a- aspects of this, climate being one of them, uh, and, and of course uh, economics, uh, and so many other things that they've listed here too. But I, I get the gist that what these guys are trying to put forth here is that these are all interrelated, like one affects the other, uh, which is a really a, a view that's contrary to what Trump has been espousing. Yeah, I think that's quite true. You know, um, uh, you, you have under a person like Donald Trump. Do you simply uh, ignore what you're trying to do and, and just stop talking about it? I think they feel that a future president, and that could be as soon as uh, January of 2021, um, will probably go in a different direction, and then this won't be needed. But how do you keep the light alive? And so they, they feel they need to talk about these issues. Um, and, and talk about them on a global scale. I mean, you have a, a partner out of Asia, you have two partners out of Europe, you have one out of North America. Uh, I, I think you'll see more of this at the next G20 summit as well, that perhaps not all 20 nations, maybe 17 of them, may talk about these issues, because these are still the prevailing issues of our time. I, I believe, uh, and I, I hope this doesn't upset your listeners too much, Bill, but I really believe this is the right way to go. We have facing issues on our, our planet whether it's overpopulation or the gap between the rich and the poor or the environment, that is much bigger than any one country to solve, and we have to work together to get these things solved, or we doom our own planet to extinction at some point. Uh, that's that's why I think it's so important to keep this this thought alive. But I, I can understand that, and uh, I, I believe the quote that I read, uh, or saw rather, uh, was from uh, Francis on board of Canada, uh, Ambassador Karine Riesbaugh, who says, Mr. Trump does not value multi well, you know the word. Easy for you to say. Yeah, the, easy for me to say. Uh, lateralism in situations like this, but says that we have to uh, because we're strong believers in this. Uh, Trump spouses made in, in, in America solutions for just about everything. He doesn't much care what the rest of the world—well, he does care what people like Putin do and, and Kim Jong-un, but not so much what the, the traditional U.S. allies seem to, to, to want to espouse. Yeah, and I think, again, this has caught us all quite by surprise. Uh, we, we knew that Mr. Trump was going to, to have a different note, a different tenor, if you will, in his administration. And, and yes, it's one thing to talk about America first, but to then uh, take the flip side of that, it's America first and everybody else second, including uh, all these issues that are facing the world. I just don't believe in these issues. I don't want to deal with these issues. Help me become the greatest thing I can be, and you folks take a back seat. It, it, it really is just such an odd a viewpoint for an American president to have. And I know uh, I, I'm lucky enough to visit Europe almost every summer. And when I'm in Europe, it is really quite amazing to see how many Europeans are simply ignoring Donald Trump. I, I've never seen an American president so ignored, not reviled. They don't hate him. They're not, they're not trying to, to uh, have him assassinated or impeached. They're just saying, we're going to ignore him. He, he, he's so far out of touch with the way the rest of the world is feeling that rather than even give him any credence at all to argue against him, we're just going to wait him out. And this is why these kinds of institutions then form. 
just so everyone also understands, this isn't like a lot of tax money going into this. This is much more about a, a thought exercise so that when these uh, world institutions meet, there are still some people saying, you know, there's a good reason for us to have a World Bank or an international monetary fund. There are good reasons for us to have the United Nations and UNICEF, uh, peacekeepers, etc., 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 because we don't believe it's all about us first. There is, there is this other point of view, and I think that's why they're doing this. Well, and one of the other organizations that just about all of them have referenced is the World Trade Organization, the WTO. Uh, and again, something that, that, that Trump has slammed on a pretty regular basis. I, I guess that's usually because the U.S. loses uh, most of the things that come before the, uh, the WTO, of course, including the softwood lumber uh, thing from a couple of years ago. Uh, but they look at those international bodies as, the, I guess, the international arbiters in, in, in dealing with uh, things like trade and everything. And, and again, that's something that seems to have slid off the table as far as the U.S. government's concerned now. Yeah, and Bill, you know, this is what's so fascinating about Donald Trump's viewpoint. The World Trade Organization was first conceived by, I'm going to pause here for drama, the United <laughs> States. They actually said, uh, if we are going to have a, uh, a relationship between different countries in the world, we need an arbiter to sort out these kinds of trade disputes. You don't think what you're doing is dumping. I do. Well, we need someone who can, who can arbitrate on these things. So they helped create the World Trade Organization, oh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and then they worked to get other nations of the world in. I can remember this would now be almost 20 years ago when China, seeking to become part of the World Club, was desperate to get membership in the World Trade Organization. And, of course, there were terms and conditions for China to belong. And who was listing those terms and conditions but the American president who was saying, well, China, we'd like you to be part of this too, but you'd better do A, B, and C. And now to find that the American president has, has turned his back on the very institution that America had wanted, that's why it seems so out of character. So the other nations say, well, we're not going to disband the World Trade Organization. We have a rogue nation, so to speak, who's, who's going against it, but we're still going to support it. We're still going to listen to it. Uh, you correctly noted that 20 times we've had um, issues in front of the World Trade Organization on softwood lumber specifically. We've won all 20 of them, including the most recent one. Um, the only problem we actually have had with the World Trade Organization in this most recent battle was how they determined uh, uh, some penalty phases. The United States uses a concept, and I won't even try to explain it to you on air here, but it's called zeroing in terms of calculating any tariffs. They're saying, first off, any tariffs are illegal, but this whole zeroing calculation is out to lunch as well. Uh, and we're trying to explore that with them. We'd like a band altogether. The World Trade Organization says, well, it, it can stand. It just has to be done differently. Um, but, you know, again, we're prepared to work through these institutions and, and take our time because that is the right thing to do. That's how we need to have trade into the future. What about the political implications? I mean, a lot of these organizations that we're talking about here, including NATO uh, and the G7 and, and things of that nature, they were done, obviously, for economic reasons, and we get a lot of that. But at the same time, let's face it, the, the elephant in the room, of course, was, was Russia. Uh, and the concern here is the U.S. was the superpower and Russia was the other superpower. If the U.S. is abdicating that responsibility, I, I, I get the sense from some of these leaders that there's a feeling that, look, that somebody's going to fill that void, and it might well try to be Russia. So we need to band together here to be strong against them. Yeah, so if we go back historically, Bill, there were three superpowers. You listed two of them, the United States and Russia, and the third being China. 
uh, it was always Russian communism that fueled all of this in the 50s and 60s, fear of nations falling to the communist uh, swan song, so to speak, uh, you know, a sweet, sweet thing of socialism, and then, oh boy, we're going to lose another ally. So that was part of it. Um, certainly another part of it was uh, safety and security. Remember, in the first half of the 20th century, Europe went through two, we call them world wars. They were European wars, World War I and World War II. It had got to the point in Europe where they were expecting a war every 20 years. And one, one thing you can point to to the success of multilateralism is that we've not had a major conflict in Europe, at least not one that involved all the major nations in Europe, for now almost 70 years. Something seems to be working here when you solve your problems through multilateral negotiations and through these multilateral organizations rather than taking up arms and fighting one another. So that's one side of it. I think Europe likes the peace that it's had. That's also why they are desperate to keep Britain in the European Union. They think that's another important part of the prosperity and, and peacefulness that's come across Europe. But then you point out the other side of this is the fear factor. What, what's, what are these superpowers going to do? And oddly enough today, I think the one that they're most worried about is China. Uh, China, the second largest economy in the world. People like me tell you that it's going to become the largest sooner rather than later, certainly by before the year 2025. What is China going to do when it has all that economic clout? It is very hard to know exactly as we stand here. Oddly enough, Russia, we, we do kind of know what they're trying to do. Mr. Putin is pretty transparent in his agenda, but China is much more inscrutable in terms of what are they trying to do here. So it's the same thing where once upon a time it was the battle between uh, Russia and the United States. Now the concern is, okay, what's China doing? And we need to, again, band together to make sure we have a common front as we face any superpower that might exist out there. How's Trump going to respond to this? This has been around for some time, and as I say, Canada's kind of late to the party, but they're now part of it. But this exclusion by the United States, does he even care? Well, you raise about three good issues all rolled into one. First, does he know? Forget about does he care, does he know? My uh, respect. My answer is he probably does not know because he uh, he wouldn't read these kinds of things. He wouldn't be seeing these kinds of briefings, and and he just sees it as being kind of small and inconsequential. If he did know about it, I don't think he's going to care because he has a bigger fish to fry. Partly he's getting ready for a re-election campaign. He's got that whole southern border with Mexico and building the wall and and also trade disputes with China. So I I don't think he's going to care. Uh, and then the, the third third aspect of all of this is that, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't believe in what they're trying to do anyway, so why give them any credence? So I think Trump just is going to ignore this. Now, having said that to you, uh, uh, Britain, or not Britain, uh, Germany, France, Canada, and Japan, we're not singing it from the rooftops either. There's no point poking the bully, if you will, in the room and, and going, na, 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 look at us. You know, we're doing this, we're doing it quietly, we don't talk about the United States, we talk about the positive aspects, we don't talk about the other, because there's no point angering the, the sleeping giant either. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for this. My pleasure, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.